0: Hey, welcome to episode 28 of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking,
1: storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we're talking to Gino Roy about all of the different disciplines it takes to become an awesome director. He's got a great background in fine arts and music, and we talk about how he mixes those things all together to approach directing from a totally different way than all of our other guests. So I think it's a really great episode if you're curious about ways in which you can let your other interests inform your directing. Yeah. Totally. But before we get into that, Matt, I would really like to know what you've been working on lately. Yeah, it's kind of been a while since we've done a catch-up. Basically, I've wrapped up all of my materials for the show that I had optioned late last year. The Lionsgate Show. The Lionsgate Show. Yeah, that's cool. And so what does that mean? You like give them your scripts, Mm -hmm. Bibles, outlines? Yeah, so specifically the deal was for a series Bible and a pilot episode and a budget, basically. You're saying you
0: need to give them the budget of how much money you need to Mm -hmm. make this
1: show. Right, so they gave us a number, and then I said, okay, I'm going to write a series around that number. I'm going to back into it, as they say. And then we said, okay, well, let's take a look at this series outline and see how realistic my scripts and ideas actually are so that we're going into creating this show with the right number in mind basically cool have you gotten feedback yet not yet not yet okay yeah. soon I'm basically twiddling my thumbs waiting for a green light. But so as a result, I'm kind of back into that mode of getting more aggressive about developing and pitching and taking meetings with people again. Well, cool. Good luck keep us updated. Thanks, man. to hear what happens. I can't wait to hear what you've been working on lately.
0: You know, I'm kind of super deep into prep on this web series. It's like a massive sci-fi action comedy thing. And we have this awesome producer and she just kind of schedules my Date her crew, she has like a, you know, line producer and a UPM and a production coordinator, assistant production coordinator. There's a lot of people working on all the moving parts. And so, you know, for instance, like, it'll be like 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Interview a editor, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Talk to a visual effects company. And we have to go through all 300 visual effects shots and tell them about it. And they have to figure out how much it's going to cost. And then it's like too much money. So we have to have to meet with the writers and we have to figure out what we can cut. And yesterday, like in the middle of my brunch I had to, like, run out and get on the phone with Anna, the star, and the two showrunners to talk about her hair style. Our show takes place in the near future. It's never said how near. Like, it's either 100 years or 500 years, somewhere in the future. And she really wants to have, like, a sci-fi modern hairstyle. Like, she wanted to have, like, a blue wig. And we're like, well, you know, we want you to look like a human being because you're going to be in this alien world, and it's a fish and out of water story. So... Just one example of these crazy conversations I have to have all day, not to mention looking at props and sets and casting and creature costumes. And it's like, it's really exhausting. And in the meantime, I'm trying to do make the shot list, which, you know, it's a movie with a lot of action scenes. We have to storyboard and shot list every single shot. So far, we've made it through the first six days. We've got 12 more days of shot listing to shot list. And I have no idea how we're going to do it because this week is really busy. And then next week we shoot. So wish us luck, but it's, it's exciting. I wanna, we actually just got permission from new form today to like tweet photos and post things. So I wanna, I'm hoping to take a lot of photos and post things on Instagram and try to,
1: you know, show some behind the scenes while we're making it. Well, I think all of our listeners will be excited to see the final output, but in the meantime. Speaking of our listeners, our number
0: one fan, Gino Roy. So, hey, we have my friend and one of the most talented people I've ever met in my life. And I'm not exaggerating. Gino Roy is here. He is a director and an artist and a musician. And do you sculpt? I have sculpted, yes. He sculpts, he paints, he has a family, he dances. I mean, it's like insane, all the things he does. And he was also our first question that we got on this podcast, which was how long ago, Matt? Six months, maybe? Maybe. Gino, I feel like you would know better than I would. Uh, It was before the HP Yeah, six months
2: and three days. (laughs) Yes. So
0: Gino had gotten this job directing an HP commercial. Yeah. And he had written us because it was kind of his first bigger corporate commercial gig and just had some questions. And we answered them, I think. And now he's just directed like a huge series
1: for New Form Digital and... And those HP spots are all over YouTube right now. Yeah. They are are the pre-roll on everything. Oh, cool. Oh, crazy. I didn't realize that. The (laughs) notebook, HP notebook. HP notebook. It's like a white psych and there's like people dancing and stuff, right? Yeah. That's those spots. Yeah, Yeah. two guys, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. I didn't realize that. That's cool. So (laughs) for people who aren't super familiar with us, give us the cliff notes on who you are and and where you are in the industry.
2: Well, I didn't go to film school. I sort of entered the entertainment industry just loving entertainment, (laughs) like uh films and stuff, music videos. But I was trained by my father, who was a fine artist, and he did a bunch of different things. And it's just sort of, my dad does like poetry, he does uh, pencil, he does oil painting, he does watercolor, he does pretty much everything, sculpting, and he's very well-rounded as an, uh, as an artist. And uh, he kind of taught me how to do all those different things, and also to put the passion behind doing those things. And as a kid, I was just like, oh, I just love doing art, but he just sort of instilled that passion behind what he was doing. Even though he's painting a hillside, th- like he still had the same passion. Like it was like the one thing he's ever wanted to do in his life. And it was, that was really interesting to me just because I was like, well, if he has that much passion for that one image, I, I just love, I love that. just like,
0: yeah. And I think that's something that you can see in like Gino's work like you know when you see a youtube video and you're like holy crap like how long must this have taken it's like like the first thing i saw of yours was like that 3d title intro to this show avi did with josh yeah that was just like i mean we're all making like really crappy like dvx 100 youtube videos and then this video shows up and it has like a TV quality, like 3D graphical intro, and I was like, "Holy cow! Like, who made this?" And it was Gino who just like kind of learned some 3D software.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was that it was that same principle of, you know, he said he, he taught me that, you know, whatever you do, just research it. Like, you know, it's the only thing in your life, and that's what I did. And the first time I met you, Orin, I, I knew how to do simple VFX and. You told me to go on these two websites and I literally that the day I met you, I went, went home and went to those websites and I was like, like okay. Video
1: Copilot. Video Copilot and, Grayscale, and Grayscale, Gorilla. Grayscale Gorilla. And I did literally. One of websites. Yeah. And it was like. I every day. Is that what you're going to name your child? or <laughs> Andrew Kramer Jr. <laughs> yeah. Or just yeah. VideoCopilot.net. The
0: problem, Video Copilot. You know, Andrew Kramer, he did the sure. titles for Star Wars. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he's just stopped updating his website yeah. completely. He hasn't done anything for Because he's working months. on the
1: projects of yeah, his but life.
0: Yeah, like literally anyone can do the titles for Star Wars. Like there's only one Andrew Kramer making the best. after effects tutorials of all time
1: if you're listening at home everyone tweet to andrew kramer we want him on the show that would be wonderful that'd be
2: insane he's so funny at the point you said to to look up that website there were 40 tutorials and i went home and that night i did every single tutorial and i was just like okay i kind of get after effects and then that kind of stemmed into doing a sizzle reel for disney and then then I started working with Oren at this company. Yeah, it was cool. And then that was like, they gave you so many projects per day in so many different like genres that you constantly had to be on your toes and, you know, produce all these different things like, you know, from a spoof to something very dramatic to. Yeah, I think you, like something that why a
0: lot of people say you should move to LA to be working this business is if you get lucky enough to get a job where you have to like learn how to do all these things, you don't really have time to
1: contemplate whether or not you want to do it. You just, yeah. Your job is you've got six videos that are due this month. So do them all real quick. So in many senses, like that was my film school. I think
0: when Gino came to Disney also, we were all, it wasn't, com- wasn't competitive at all, but we were all like getting geeking out so much about like all these cool things that we were editing and making and trying to make each other laugh and, be amazed that it's like, it was like a really good environment to kind of learn to get better at visuals, which I think is something we were talking before we started recording the podcast that I think Gino is really unique is that, you know, you come from a fine art background. Most of the people we talk to come from like an editing background or or a film school background or writing. Pretty standard, like single
1: discipline or.
0: Yeah. Kind of coming from the story into the, how do you visualize the story? And you, you have like such a visual background and a, and a sonic background. I don't know. (laughs) He's also a really good musician.
2: I came, I was brought up a musician first and I just sort of, in my periphery, there was this artistic, you know, visual thing. So I started playing a bunch of instruments, uh, saxophone and all these different instruments and ended up with French horn through high school and singing and doing musical theater. And so that was sort of, music first for me. I just thought, I just loved to perform. And, uh, there was that deep rooted visual art background that, that kind of comprised my life.
1: I think the idea, this theme of, of multiple disciplines informing your art, I think is a thing that sometimes gets washed away, especially in more traditional film schools. I think that they think that, you know, producing and cinematography and screenwriting, that's enough. And that's a, a, a lot to work with for sure. But, uh, you know, I think that, that i talk about on the podcast sometimes is when i was first starting out i was an intern at the director's bureau which was roman coppola's music video production company where like i remember roman literally had music videos that he was doing all the time he just finished a movie but at the same time like i would be pulling like research material for roman on like a magic trick that he was developing you know <laughs> right so it was a really amazing environment to be around because it just reminded you that everything cross contaminates you know right. and that you don't know in what ways your disciplines in you know fine arts or something are going to cross over
0: yeah that life inspires yeah. your art hopefully yeah. in a way that is new yeah or original by the way, I, we're throwing aside like all his other accomplishments. He edited a Sundance feature film with J.K. Simmons and uh, Adam Scott. Yeah,
2: now,
1: yeah. which movie is that?
2: The Vicious Kind. The Vicious Kind. Oh, yeah, I yeah, I grew up with this guy Lee Krieger, who was an amazing director, and uh, he sort of you know guided my my upbringing, learning how to make films, and uh, we learned the hard way at every point, and it was great. It was it was a wonderful experience. So. Lee
0: was directing these movies that Gino was editing and they're going to Sundance and get, you know, I think he just did Age of Adeline. Obviously, he's like kind of on his way up and I was working with Gino at the time and Lee had some other movies. He was going to have Orlando Bloom in it or some other big stars and Gino chose to stay at Disney making kind of fun, funny comedy visual videos instead of going with Lee to edit these like big studio films and I I, I was always like, Gino, what are you doing? But uh, in hindsight, it like makes so much sense. Well... It seems
2: more of a decision. It was more of a scheduling thing because I was I was supposed to be doing the movie earlier and it just never aligned with my schedule. And I was just like, I really want to stay with with Oren and these guys that are just literally the best group of people that I've ever worked with. And I was just so taken with like their passion for for doing things that were, you know, for. 12 to 14 year old kids but their work ethic was so amazing and their skill set was just like tremendous that I was just like this is like the group of people that I just want to be with so it was not a no-brainer to stay and I learned tons of stuff I mean at that point I was just starting to do music for Disney for those parodies that we were doing and I was like I think we needed a spoof and they're like, oh, we need something to sound like a Mac commercial. And I was like, oh, I could I could probably figure that out. And like, what, you do music too? I'm like, sure, I could figure something out. And then we, you know, that led to like 40 spoof songs. and you know. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's crazy. Gino would make like, you know, be like, oh, we need a Taylor Swift song. And he would just make the music like overnight and it would sound like literally as good as a tailor like way better than anything you can get from a music library
2: yeah and so the, like working with actors uh, coming in and just kind of producing that music was a, a big thing for me like directing them in a musical capacity helped me talk to them and and kind of judge where they were comfortable performing musically and and a lot of a lot of them really knew how to sing and had musical backgrounds which was really cool i feel like that was my first like directing Thing, just being a musical director and a producer of music for, for Disney.
0: When you're recording music, you know, parodies and stuff, usually the director wants to be in the room because you want to, you know, it's still a performance, a comedic performance, even if you're singing. But if you knew if Gino was doing it, like, you didn't even have to go because he, he like, had a better sense of how the music will be funny and hit the beats and sound good than most directors. So, so you're doing that stuff, and now... How did you transition? You know, I, I know now you work with Sawhorse, with Nick and Blake, who we had on the podcast last time.
1: Yeah, and just to, to remind people, I think Gino, I think, was the person they were referring to when they said, oh, like, we, you know, I, I don't know if they name-checked you or I not. I did
2: listen to this show, so they did mention me.
1: They did mention Okay, great. <laughs> but, but you're an example of the type of person where they were like, oh, his work is sick. Let's bring him in. You became staff and just kind of slowly put in the hours to work your way up and then finally... You'd crushed it on the post side for so many times that they were like, oh, you're ready for a directing gig. And you made it clear that you wanted to do that. Yeah, I think
2: I make it abundantly clear to anyone that I'm working for that I'm going to go above and beyond like that I only have one switch and that's like full passion all the time, which is like, mm. which is it takes not amazing. Easy. It's jumps, not easy. Yeah. To, <laughs> I mean like, yeah, you should have seen. Yes. No, I'm okay. kidding. No, it's, it's, it's really weird. And I'll probably get into this later. How I like, how I am on set for like when I directed last week, but yeah, I'm very, very, very passionate. And I really want to make people, I love the feeling of being like overwhelmed emotionally. And I mean, eventually I would love to, Do that in a in a capacity for animated features. My whole life thinking about film, I wanted to go to Pixar, and I still say that to this day, and I really do. But that kind of emotional, overwhelming feeling that I get with pretty much every single uh, movie is what I want to uh, conjure in people because it just I love that feeling. Well, you're really
0: good at it. Amongst the millions of other things that Gino did, he first of all he directed like a multi million dollar stop-motion animation film for Disney, <laughs> co-directed, right?
2: I don't know if Blank. multi-million dollars. If it's over one, I think it's
0: multi-million dollars. <laughs> okay. I mean, the salaries of the staff alone must have been over a million dollars, right?
2: Oh, uh, that, that, that may be very true.
0: And he also makes these, like, everyday videos where it's, like, summaries of the week, summaries of the year, and they're always, like, if you know Gino and you watch it, you're, like, can't not, like, get teary-eyed when you're watching it, so... You're very effective at doing that. Yeah. And I think kind of another lesson, sorry, I'm talking about you so much. It's one of my hobbies. um, (laughs) That's why
1: you started a (laughs) podcast.
0: That you can take from Gino is like, you know, even if he's just editing or just doing the music or just doing a graphical design or designing a logo or something for a project, he like always, you can always tell that he cares about the whole thing. It's not like just his part. And, you know, I'm sure, Matt, you can speak to this, but sometimes you work with a DP and all they care about is what it looks like. Or a production designer. All they care about is, like, what they can put on their website at the, after the shoot. Right. And the actors just care about their performance. But when you find someone that cares about every single part, that's I mean, like... That,
1: that's what a director is, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. It's like, yeah, actually, you know, I think my artwork will look better if her makeup, you know, is in this color. Like, you're starting to collaborate and make things that are, you know, the sum is, is greater than the whole and all that stuff, which... It's kind of, I think, what Gino like always exemplified, and that's why it just seemed natural for people to ask him to direct.
2: Well, uh, yeah, I do tend to go a little bit above and beyond, and I I do that just because it it makes the project seem bigger, and you know, it just means more to me. So I don't know. As soon as I can put my full passion behind something, I know that I'm doing something worthwhile. So I did storyboard today, just in case I needed to, like if we were to film something. So I, (laughs) I make little cheat sheets. Sure. If you want to check that out, I made little cheat sheets for uh, when I directed Fine-Tuned, which is the 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 series that I did. And I would, you know, it was it was down to like I had a shot list that I created, which is a bunch of words, and then they had like a schedule. And I can't really like look at a bunch of words and lines. I've made a habit into storyboarding everything I do. And, it, and it's sort of a hindrance. And it's also like very beneficial for me because one, it takes like three hours to get ready for like, like an episode of Fine Tuned. Like I left set, went home, drew for three hours, and then like fell asleep, <laughs> just kind of passed out in my chair and then woke up at 3 a.m. and then got ready for the next day. And it was totally overwhelming and totally exhausting. But it was like, I felt confident that if I have these pictures and the words underneath it, that I would just like scratch them off and I can complete my day. Right. You want to be prepared. Yeah. That was the only way I felt prepared. And the first day I was like, has reservations of doing it because it would just take so long to do. I had to draw 33 frames to get prepared. And I was like, and I have to like, see if this is exactly what I want and everything. So Gino is just it, nuts, right? Yeah. I mean, so obviously you guys listening yeah. to the podcast don't know what just happened here, but <laughs> Gino just showed us
0: storyboards that he drew of our podcast today where I'm sure. making a bad pun and Matt's making it worse or something. <laughs> or at least improving continuing. it. Improving improving it. Improving. Punch, punching up is punching I think the
1: industry term. Punching up. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: uh, Andy, you have a wife and two kids and a full-time job that you work crazy hours. And when did you have time to I did that before you came. <laughs> this morning you drew storyboards yeah, of I drew
2: story, Oh, I wanted to do something special. So I, I was <laughs> either going to do... A magic trick or or <laughs> this and i decided that i'm probably better suited doing this
1: sure sure well it's a coin toss right yeah, yeah. and well, his right. storyboard so, so, like <laughs> so we'll we'll be so. sure we'll be sure to post that in, in the show notes so that everyone will know exactly what it's like to record an episode of just shoot it <laughs> also
2: uh, it might be a good for anybody who is very visual to maybe prep their day or just i don't know make it a more of a visual thing to prepare yourself because I don't know how other directors do it. I didn't go to film school, so I don't know exactly what you guys, how you prepare yourself, so this is the only way I feel comfortable on set.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I love I love the idea of you owning that, you know, and knowing the way in which you function best, but I, I want to take a step back, because I think we've mentioned Fine-Tuned a little bit, right? And we've talked about New Form, but like let's just kind of set it up for the listeners at home, so, just so everyone's clued in. So Fine-Tuned is a show with New Form Digital, the show, the same company that I did Shitty Boyfriends with and that Oren is working on Miss Universe with.
0: Well, it's called Miss Earth, but apparently legal issues with the official Miss Earth. So the title is going to change. So who knows?
1: Cool. All right. So we'll pitch on names after this. (laughs) But Oren's working on this big sci-fi show that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks as well. So Gino has his own New Form show. Right. Called it's phone. also for Go90. Oh, for, for Go90. Yeah. Oh, great. Awesome. So you guys can all watch it on your phones soon-ish, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. What's the logline? What's the pitch for the show? And then talk about how you got the job.
2: It's a comedy web series that I went and maybe made it a little too dramatic. But it's about a man who created an algorithm that can determine if a mu- if a song is going to be a hit song or not. And uh, he made right. a bunch it's of money. Like a real thing. Yeah. So it just—it's kind of like the Silicon Valley kind of like deal of you know the technology, uh, music turning into technology. And uh, he has a tenant who is a musician as well, and they sort of join forces into you know crafting a hit song.
1: Oh, that's cool. That's a really good premise, right? Great premise. And also, it sounds like, Gino, you're perfect for it. Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) It's so easy to incorporate music into a premise
1: like that. And it's a musical as well. Is that right? I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's songs every single
2: episode while they explore different genres of music. And it's, on the one hand, the younger guy wants to create a hit song to win back his girlfriend, and... The older man <laughs> is uh, trying to keep his job. So, yeah. But isn't it like
0: Hustle and Flow or Empire where the songs are, the characters are singing or is it like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend where they're singing about Broadway their feelings? Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, it's them creating the songs. So it is both of them writing and producing these songs to, p- to put into the algorithm to see if it's going to be a hit song. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah and so they're both very musical. The guy who created the story is actually playing the lead. His name is Craig Benzine. And he Wheezy is waiter. Wheezy Waiter. Yeah. yeah. yeah Wheezy on Waiter YouTube. on YouTube. Yeah. you got to check him out. Does he sing? Is that what he does on YouTube? Does he sing? He, no, he's, a, he's just sort of like, he has a beautiful brain. And he's a YouTube personality that just kind of explains a lot of different things from the mundane to like the very intricate uh, scientific.
1: Yeah, he's like kind of like a more cerebral vlogger yeah makes sense right like he'll do like no, so he's not a musician
2: he's no he is a musician i mean i think that's sort of he's an all-encompassing like renaissance amazing renaissance he had had
1: a band and all of that stuff but his core videos are are him talking to a camera and being funny right but then kind of outside of that he's got this whole world of you know other disciplines like gino yeah perfect
2: so So it sounds
1: like a match made in heaven so So, so, that's
2: great and then also our other lead who's the younger kid is a guy named jesse pepe who goes by jp who's also like a youtube kind of guy as well not as much but it, he he's got some some hits up there and so how'd you get the job? so i got blake and nick actually pitched me as the director for that um so and the job I,
0: came into sawhorse through Eben and blake and nick
2: yeah and i don't know exactly what the situation was but i told them in december that i would love to do more narrative stuff and uh, they kind of just put me into the ring it was really cool and who made the music did you make it I didn't make the music, again, we went to, the stu- to a studio and uh, Craig wrote a lot of the songs and we went in there and I was able to do the same thing, I was able to direct the music with his help. So you weren't involved in pitching yourself? No, I, Blake did that for me. Oh. <laughs> Blake and Evan kind of took the reins, they like really hyped me up. At a certain point I had the job and I had to pitch Craig what I wanted to do with it and uh, I put together kind of a lookbook, kind of mood board. Thing. Uh, it was like an eight page pdf of the look and feel and a couple of uh, the motifs that i wanted to do i wanted to i mean a lot of the things were stemmed from this podcast of really delving delving into what i want to get out of these things and um what was the two-part series or the two-part episode that you guys oh did? with matt barber
1: yeah where he that, was that, those are great yeah,
2: yeah so i listened to that yeah. and i was really like great. heavily charged to like Make what I was doing visually convey, you know, themes like like convey themes through visuals, and I was like, oh, I, everything kind of clicked, and I was like, okay, this is what I do, and I so I set up a couple visual motifs for the entire thing that sort of got me around the mindset of like, oh, this is how I want to craft it, and then I pitched that to Craig, and he's like, yeah, that's exactly, that sounds great. Cool, uh, and so what your PDF. Was pictures that you drew, or uh, no? It was images just, you found. It was kind of like the pitch treatments that we we do at Sawhorse all the time. It was you know found pictures mostly from Pinterest, <laughs> and uh, just sort of it laid out you know how how I want to make people feel, and then like how I'm gonna do that, and this is what the house looks like, and this is what this room looks like, this is what the office looks like, this is what the nightclub looks like, and this is what the wedding looks like, and so I. Once I imagined every location and like character and fully visualized them out in my head, I was able to put the story together, you know, of the different relationships. And then we had a couple of days with Craig and the cast members to kind of go over the backstory and kind of fully flesh out these characters.
0: Cool. I'm actually curious for Matt, for Shitty
1: Boyfriends, how much did you talk to the actors before the shoot? I got a little bit of time with Melissa, our lead. Um, but just a touch, you know. Uh, prep yeah, you, was really, really rushed. Her on the phone yeah, yeah. We, and uh, you know, that was the thing where I think everyone was kind of bouncing around a little bit. You know, schedules were were definitely a challenge. I knew that going in, so I worked really hard in the audition and callback experience to make sure that I had a good sampling of what they felt like and, and you know what their vibe was basically and I would I, I you know I sent a handful of emails and things like that but unfortunately it wasn't really a situation where we got to be as like rehearsal oriented as it sounds like you guys were just you, due to scheduling basically
0: right and did you talk to aside from Craig did you like have a phone
2: call with the actors before the shoot well we all met at the same I mean the, our main cast met one day and you know we had a couple hours. So we said, okay, who are these characters, and what, what were they like in the last 10 years? What makes them, you know, when did you guys meet? When did this happen? When did that happen? And we sort of created this backstory we all agreed on, and that kind of informed a lot of this story. And, uh, and we so all, did you come into that meeting with, like, ideas or you had like this is what I think and what do you think or was it like no just I' just an open blank canvas the first like, let's just talk the first person I talked to was Craig he, he flew in from Chicago and uh, I said okay who's this guy and before I flavor it at all I'd like to download what you had in, in mind because he created the whole thing so he's like okay this is this character and I was just, I just wanted to know like hi, like his character and his wife in in the story I was like what is the backstory behind this? And then slowly more and more cast members came in and I was like, okay, so how does this character fit into the story and what's their backstory and what, how do you guys, you know, we kind of built it more and more as more people came and, you know, there's ultimately four people and we all kind of like vibed and like, okay, now we all we all know where we're coming from. And it seems weird to do for a web series comedy to to have a big, you know, basis that we really don't need to know but i feel it was great to just to get people's mind around who these characters are and to, to know that we're taking it seriously right. and uncovering a lot of the layers that might like punch up a lot of the humor
0: yeah i mean to me it's like you were saying about prep how you like you literally storyboarded this podcast before you came here because to me it like all comes from fear like you don't want to be on set and they're just doing something that feels so off to you, but you can't like articulate why, and then you just kind of go with it or try to adjust them a little bit. Like to me on set, it's like you can adjust the performance like five to 10%. You can't take, you know, you yeah, can't take it's like a it's hard unlikable to really character something. and make them yeah. super likable all of a sudden, It, you know, especially when the actor's like off book and like has prepared things in a certain way. So it's like all that prep stuff really helps. And it, whether you use any of it or not, at least you get like a feeling for what they're gonna bring to the set.
2: I think you guys were also talking earlier in a, another episode about how improv and when it when it works and when it doesn't work, and I feel like if if the the cast knew who their characters were and what they wanted out of the scene, that they would be able to improv in a very realistic manner and and kind of play up the comedy of the moment, and that's what I wanted to do with with this. I knew this was going to be not a series comedy on on cable and it's gonna live on a mobile device. And I was like, you know, whenever I do something, I always make it like a film version of what it is. And I was like, I don't wanna do that. I wanna do something that fits the platform. So I'm trying to merge like cable series comedy with YouTube and kind of getting the best hybrid version of that. And a lot of it stemming from the YouTube vlog style cuts where you kind of snip every, you know, all the ends of the jokes. And they're somehow funnier, you know. Mm-hmm. You have all these YouTube personalities that they they react to themselves. Uh, well, they just react, and they're acting in their normal environment. And they just those brief glimpses into their actual life and the and the realism behind that. You get a charge out of it comically, and you also get to see what they are like as a as a person, and how they react to that circumstance. And how, you know, even sipping a cup of coffee or like not. Misplacing a cable into their laptop, or reacting to different situations, the way they conduct themselves and that tells a lot about the person. And uh, I felt if if I came out at it at a realistic place for with these characters, when they do improv or they do right before every scene, I would I would want them to improv in their in their character. So we'll we'll do the script, but just lead into that that moment, and hopefully we can snip these little brief moments of. Realism and uh, kind right. of let it come alive a little bit. Yeah, you have to obviously
0: have actors that are good at that. Yeah, some actors like their improv is just bad, and you I, we've all seen a Judd Apatow movie or two where you're like, they could have probably cut out that part that's <laughs> sure. like clearly yeah. improv. But I think but there's yeah, a, there's
2: I, all there's a tone of improv in like film now. It's you, you mm-hmm. know when they're off book, you know when. Uh, well, that, that's when it's yeah. bad, right? That, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> when it's bad, but it also gets the audience in a mood where, like, they're ready for that kind of humor. Sure. You know, it's just like, oh, it's it's a comfortable feeling. They're going to make me laugh, and this is something that wasn't scripted.
1: Well, I, I think that there, maybe we're talking about two different styles of improv as well, right? Yeah. Because there's the difference between throwing out alt jokes or, like... Replacing a button or something like that, and true scene work, right? Yeah, you know, maybe you the two easy buckets are like Jill Soloway, right? Yeah, and then Adam McKay. Adam McKay is like pure, just like I've got alts, alts for yeah. all of these different jokes, and yeah, that's improv. That's like abatawi And Jill Soloway created Transparent. Transparent. She Jill was Soloway? a writer on Six Feet Under. She's been yeah, a writer yeah, on she, a she, shows yeah, yeah. But Jill Soloway famously kind of like doesn't call action. You know, like you just kind of improvise for a little bit and they're rolling and you don't know when the scene starts or when it ends.
2: So, yeah, you know? that's what I did in this one. That's, right. that's basically what I did because I they were I gave them a moment to just get in character. And then I would just say whenever you're ready and also gave them a cue. I was like, OK, when you want to start the scene, either say your line or adjust your tie or like do do something that so other people know that mm-hmm. you want to get into the scene. So that was great. And I only did it when, you know, I I try it every now and again. And when they really were in the zone, I would just let them explore more and more. But yeah, sometimes it it was just sort of like a beautiful moment every once in a while. Just like, oh, yeah, keep keep, keep doing that.
1: I'm I'm so fascinated by this because I feel like this is the best example of that I've heard of, like, really the practicality of like, how do you get people to start the scene when you want them to and things like that? Yeah, Did know. it pay off? Yeah. I'm curious. I
2: mean, I'm just start, like I know that I got a lot of great moments before the script, and I know how I would cut it, and I know that it would be amazing. I just don't know, in line with the story around it, if it's gonna feel weird because I, I haven't really seen that done a lot. So when it all comes together, I think we'll, you know, I'll make mm-hmm. the decision. You can either cut it or just leave it in, and I think, I think it will be the key in making like a cinematic experience more digestible and shareable mm. yeah. two
0: things about that real quick is one is obviously that's why it makes such a huge difference when you get to edit the stuff you direct because you know in your brain that it works but you also know that as an editor it's going to take some work to make it work mm-hmm. and so an editor that's got to edit three episodes and it's not you they're, anything that's not easy to make work they are not. that's not going to be their tendency first they're going to try to make everything work as easily as possible so That's why it's nice when you're doing kind of interesting stuff like that to edit your own things or at least be very involved in like the first cuts.
2: Yeah, I I sort of put myself in a little bit of a predicament in that we had a script that was written and then just going to our locations, it just they didn't match up. And there's some dialogue that was, you know, still hanging in the air of like. Well, would this character actually do that? And like, would would this? Does this make sense? And does this make sense to the story? So there was a mutation of the script to fit what we, you know, right, what the reality. Had, of what had, you had, what yeah, the saw. reality of our situation and like the locations and everything. So I gave that to the to to an editor who wasn't on set and like only had the script to go by. And I just like, oh, I didn't have the coverage that normally you would have because we had a, a, a short amount of time to shoot it. And I also was, you know, being very artistic and maybe even a tad bit pretentious with my shots. And, and that was, you know, there's a lot of question marks in the air. And then even at the very end, I was like, hey, cause I, re- I really trust this guy, Ben Caro, And mm-hmm. I was like, hey, I really, I, I love your work. I just want you to have at it. Just just go and swing for the fences. Whatever you do, just, I know, I just trust you. And that, <laughs> then I saw, like, what he did. <laughs> and there was a lot of outside forces as well, because, like, he was around a lot of people. I wasn't there. Oh, and he was ooh, starting ooh, to cut. Sorry,
1: when you say outside forces, do you mean producers? There was you, pro- there was producers. Like, and network? The, like, everyone, and like-
2: every, no, well, everyone in the office when he was cutting, I kind of abandoned him in a certain Regard, you know, information wise because I just wasn't there. I was on set and I was just like, I trust you just have at it. And did, did he have script notes and things like that? He like, had script notes. He had everything but like a direction and mm-hmm. that was a big mistake on my part. But also, I don't know. It was kind of beautiful too in the, in the same sense because he did a lot of things very differently and like completely contrasting every sense that I would have to make, to put things together and a lot of those things got me thinking and it ultimately will, and you know, influence because I didn't want just like my vision and like I wanted it to be more collaborative. But, you know, I think setting a tone and starting a direction would probably be a better, better start.
1: Do you feel like other people understand what the show is going to look and feel like based off of your vision? Or do you think they're going to be surprised? Or like, how how in the know is everyone else on this whole thing?
2: I'm a little nervous. Well, you had, I mean, you have the lookbook, right? I That's do have the, I do yeah. have the lookbook. I don't know how circulated that got, and I think the people from New Form and Above Ravage, when they were on set, they could kind of get a feel of what it was going to look like and how it was going to feel. And granted, those were two days that were like completely unlike the rest, but. I don't think, there was no, like, like red flags or anything. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like, everyone sort of, like, was trusting each other. And I'm not trying to do something that's, like, sure, crazy sure. outlandish. Sure, of course you're not so, a saboteur. No, I mean, I think I think everyone's going to really enjoy it. And, um, I mean, obviously tweaks could be in, made in any different direction to make this whatever it needs to be. And I'll always fight for what I believe in. But, yeah, I don't think that, yeah, I think they kind of, I think the lookbook went a long way. Yeah, with the series, I mean, kind of what you're
0: saying is like, you, you look at like Boardwalk Empire, the pilot was done by Martin Scorsese or um, right, House of Cards, David Fincher. Like, it sounds like Ben started editing while you're still shooting.
1: Oh, yeah, um, definitely.
0: Like, but in a perfect world, this, you would get to be super involved in the pilot episode edit to set the tone right. and the editing style and the
1: look and the pacing and the rhythm and the comedy. And then, then everyone agrees on this is what the show is now. Yeah. And we started shooting. We
2: started it. shooting right. episode four and five. And so he got the dailies from that and just started going, you know, just aEing and assembling. Right, right. And you weren't even shooting in order. Yeah, so. and I was and I was completely overwhelmed because of, you know, right, storyboarding. Right. And I had right. three, two hours of sleep every night and just it was kind of crazy. And I was just like, I get overly I mean always passionate, but I get overly like trusting with everyone and just like it's going to be beautiful <laughs> you know and just like do yeah. whatever you do i love me. you yeah. <laughs> so yeah so that was uh i think uh, i don't know I, I it seemed more freeing or like giving them freedom but at a certain point it's you know, not time efficient.
1: Well, and I always say that the assembly cut is the hardest. You know, like the, it's like the worst version of your thing. And yeah. especially if it's something where they're rushed and they don't totally know. Maybe they're hedging a little bit, of mm-hmm. leaving some fat in there so that yeah. you can together cut out all of the things that you don't like. Right. That just goes for uh, maybe a depressing first cut. <laughs> There's so
0: many different philosophies <laughs> yeah. on editing first cuts. A lot yeah. of editors will be like, I just wanted to use every angle. Yeah. So yeah. Obviously, we're not going to use like yeah. these five cuts. But, but now you know what but, we have. Yeah. It,
1: it, it and reminds to me, you. I'm like, yeah. I directed and I know mm, what sure, we sure. have.
0: Yeah. Let's just make it good.
2: But I, I think Harper, I'm I'm, a, I'm the actual opposite. I just like I want this one shot and that's it. Like I don't want to get other coverage. This right. is the shot. I mean, that's like a confident what a confident director does.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's why I never knew So, so sorry because a dumb one. It sounds like you've done like a decent number of oneers yeah. on the shoot. And oneer
0: again, just reminding people is. A,
1: Basically playing out a whole scene in like one shot. Without options to speed things up or slow things down or cut to a reaction or things like that. It's kind of like jumping without a net. Yeah. And they did it a lot on Shitty Boyfriends. I think you kind of have to when you're just dealing with the budget and schedule that these shows are on, right? And it's a great way to do something artistic and stylized and interesting. But also (laughs) it backs you, it paints you into a corner, right? I love doing that. Yeah, right. Me me too. (laughs) That's why
0: you see so many shows. Have like this jump cutty style, yeah. yeah and sure. it's like if you can convince your audience that that's part of the yeah. aesthetic of your show that you oh, do you're doing jump cuts, then
2: you're a great. Show. Then you can do anything. You want. Yeah, jump cuts are great when they work, but they're really Bad I don't know. They take they, know, they Well, they just take you out. It just feels right. like oh, somebody's cutting this. Like it's it, edited, yeah. yeah, it
1: works great for like a drug sequence. Yeah. Like, right, right. Or a YouTube vlog. YouTube vlogs. But so you mentioned that you had above average and new form on set. Mm-hmm. Were you? Getting approvals on these winners. like like with shitty boyfriends, I would run over to the producers and be like, "Hey guys, there's no
0: way they care about that stuff." No,
1: but 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 I would do it as a way to be like, "Hey, I'm gonna do it this way. That means we don't have choices. Yeah, I think this is oh, the right call. You I, would I, you would I, let
2: them in on that.
1: I would let them in. Yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. I I never.
1: I, I never asked for permission to do
2: anything. <laughs> and ah, maybe, I maybe it. And I, I like don't know. That so much I mean, more. there's there's certain. I mean, there for those days, I had a lot of people behind me. Mm-hmm. Like I was sitting in a director's chair, and there was you know the people I was working with, and like right next to me, but behind me was an arena of people, just kind of tapping me on the shoulder of of like getting thoughts of, hey, what what if we had an alt like this, and sure. and why don't we do this? And it was that was a really rough time like i i just like i had a problem with like they would give me a note before i would give my note back to the set and if they did that i would completely forget what i wanted to do Mm. and they were doing that so often that they were like okay what's the note i'm like i don't remember do it just do it again yeah
1: yeah Mm.
0: yeah it's stressful keeping that to me i like it when they give when other people are giving the same note that i was gonna give yeah because you can be like oh yeah that's really good or like try to get them to
2: feel like they're they're in on directing it. I think it always makes people I happy. It, I feel like it's frustrating because I, I literally just gave that note and they didn't listen to it. And, you know, yeah like, hey, what, why don't you uh, just have them say this part faster? I'm like, I just said that.
1: Yeah. Or, or the thing that drives me nuts is that, like, it's always a process, right? You're crafting a performance. And maybe the thing that you're focusing on is not the thing that, like, you want to deal with the first half of the yeah. beat. And they want to deal with the second half. So you're just like, I'm getting there. You know give me a second yeah we're just we're gonna we're gonna get through it but like I think part of that is just making sure that you have the rapport with your producers yeah and with your cast that like you're gonna do it your way first and then if they still have notes you are gonna double check with them I
2: did that the hard way
1: yeah (laughs) yeah I learned that the
2: hard way yeah because I was just getting so frustrated and you could see it on my face and I was just like what you know I was just getting like a little abrasive and at a certain point, I was kind of like it's had totally to, normal. I had, yeah, totally I had to, normal, like, totally I had to like subdue my emotions. I was like, okay, everyone wants to help me. I know this; they're not in, coming from a, the wrong I'm bad side, Yeah, bad place. And so I was just had to like apologize to some people and like, say, hey, <laughs> hey, I just wanted to say that you know I, I I do get very confused and like lost on set if I if I don't say my note right away. And I'm sorry if I came across as like angry, but. I don't know. I just I felt really frustrated, and I, I didn't really. So, and, and then I definitely repaired that bond, and like uh, they were able to be much more, more receptive. And I said, "Let me just get it to where I like it, and then we'll do it one time. Right, one time right. with um, a bunch of notes that you you know encompassing all of right, the different yeah. things you want to have changed."
1: And I think the important thing about that is that you express that, so that you don't end up in the worst case scenario. <laughs> which is where you're fighting no even worse than that is they're like oh they're not he's not listening to me and then they just go give the actor the note themselves oh wow Right. Which can happen, you know, especially if it's a, a person who's very invested and maybe, you know, has a little bit more authorship than a network or a studio right. necessarily does. Well, in the does. commercial world, the client
0: is basically God, right? I'm yeah, vet.
1: yeah. So you have to listen to them yeah. for sure. And, I t- and I'm never saying I'm ignoring them. I'm just saying this is part of the process. Right. So you have to trust that, like, I know how to work with actors. That's why I'm doing it. And we're working with them together. But if they go behind your back and say, like, what if you uh did this or that even when they have the best intentions that's when the power dynamic just crumbles right because then an actor doesn't know who they're listening to Uh. or who the boss is and they're trying to they know that that that's the client that guy's wearing a suit i should listen to him he's paying my my paycheck i want to do a good job and then you're just uh you know well any good producer
0: should set that up right at the beginning hey if you haven't know Come to me. I'll talk to the director. I'll talk to the actors. Like
1: they're. But but if a client doesn't feel listened to, and if you don't make sure that they know that they're being listened to, that's when that can happen. Yeah, that's a nuclear option. That's like a real fucking problem. I've
0: done on set multiple times where the client just really feels passionate about something, and I'll be like, "Let's walk over to the actor and you tell the actor what you just told me," because (laughs) especially if I don't agree with them, I just want them. Because sometimes I feel like they're they're like oh that wasn't funny enough or wasn't act, like active enough or it was a little too slow and I'm like and I've given the actor the note and I, I I'm worried that if I give the actor the client's note it's not going to work so I yeah. want them to see it not work so I'll be like here come over tell the actor what you just told me yeah do it way funnier you know kind of <laughs> like Steve Carell or whatever oh, wow. and then. And then I want to see them do it and it not work, or maybe sometimes it does work, and I'm like, yeah, so that that's fine. I think I think as long as you're always involved in the communication, yeah, yeah. Different people run sets differently. I never mind. I always think everyone should be allowed to talk to everyone as long as it's not what you're saying, like parallel paths going on at the same time.
2: Yeah, I completely. I did the shot list. I mean, I did the shot list and drew the storyboards for the edit. So I was shooting for the edit, and I don't. That's mm. another reason I paint myself into corners, yeah. too, because I don't have the coverage.
0: But Yeah, I, I used to, when I first started making movies, I always shot for the edit. And then I stopped completely shooting for the edit, and I, my coverage would be really boring and standard. And now I try to find some place in the, the middle. Yeah. It's hard, because you want magic to happen, but you want it to be cool and stylized. and. But
2: uh, also, like, the other, other coverage is kind of hard to get at this level as well because of the budgets. Of, and we need to shoot out the scene and do dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. And then I found myself doing inserts at the very end. And they just sort of, it was rushed. And even at the end, I was like, I don't have any establishing shots of the house or different things. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. we don't have time. There's Second there's unit. grip trucks Second like in the yeah, way. Sure. I'm like, I have to see this house, right? Yeah. Like people need to, to, it needs to be op- more open because it was right. inside the house the entire time. That's when you yeah. go to
0: Google Street View. <laughs> just steal a
1: frame and do like a little uh, 3D projection and anyway. Or, or, you know, maybe you can pull uh, just the DP and um, a camera for the day. I think about that stuff all the time. Yeah. Shitty Boyfriends, all of our establishing shots are, you know, cartoons. They're animated for that reason. Yeah,
0: But uh, there are two things that that came up, Gino, from your conversation. I want to have a very quick discussion about. One was about you saying whenever you're ready
2: instead of action it's it was. Like, it wasn't every time, but there was. There were certain times when I wanted them to get into character and really focus up. Right. Yeah. I mean, sure. If someone's like crying or emotional, I yeah. would
0: maybe do that. To me, I like love saying action. <laughs> and, oh, and, me too. And it's my mm-hmm. last part of directing. Is like how I say action. It's like if it's like, mm-hmm. if it's, like <sighs> you're like about to get really angry yeah. at someone, or you're ran away from someone. It's like and action. You know. Yeah. And if it's like if you're about to like go charge at someone you know it's like and action like yeah i feel like i I don't know i like saying action. i know so many directors like someone was the makeup artist on this bob odenkirk thing and she's like you want to know his secret i was like yeah what's his secret She's like you want to know how he gets great performance yeah tell me she's like you want to know why his stuff is so good (laughs) i'm like yes please tell me she's like he never says action (laughs) like okay she's like yeah he just goes like yeah just whenever you're ready like okay and then what she's like and then the performances are great like okay yeah. Well, yeah. i you think it's the casting <laughs> no i think you
2: do i mean you definitely have to trust the cast i mean a lot of the secondary and like the, the other roles i would definitely say action because the it would cue them and they right but, and the camera move and the lighting and yeah that, especially if you're doing more kind of deliberate
0: stuff yeah. outside of the performance and i don't know i love saying action <laughs>
2: yeah yeah i mean uh, there were certain points where these are comedians like first they're comedians then they're actors and then you know and they're funny together and their chemistry is just so amazing that when you do need to do the more emotional dramatic parts between takes they're cracking jokes and like doing bits and i'm and it's so great and fun to to know that they're working together but when you need to get into that zone Mm -hmm you have to, you know, you have to break it up a little bit and just sort of like say, guys, think about your character and what they're going through right now. And I would just give them like little bits of inspiration of what happened before and just kind of have them settle. And I said, whenever you're ready. And then, then, you know, they would just come alive and bring this amazing performance together. And immediately after, they'd be like cracking jokes. And I was like, oh, at least we got that out there. Yeah. And they were great, great actors. And I was like, just, I realized a lot of it a lot of directing is um, just getting the actors in the right mood to get the performance.
0: Right. Or just figuring
2: out how they work, which we talked about. Yeah, you totally.
0: Know? It's like some people can crack a joke right after they cry in a crying scene. Yeah, Other sometimes
2: it's a release. Like,
1: you know, sometimes that's Take okay. a timeout. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And For another me. thing I found out, too, is whenever they were improving, they were more realistic and believable just saying their lines. And every once in a while, I would have this thing that I'd say that would loosen them up. And it was just like, can we keep the juices flowing on this one? Uh, Or the first time I said it was like, wow, you really got the juices flowing with that one. And then every subsequent one, I would say another joke about juices flowing and or squeezing fruit. And it Mm -hmm. it, it got more and more out of control, but it loosened them up. And I was like, okay, okay, uh, why don't we... uh, Hold the pulp, but put the lid of the juice into the pantry. And like, that would just like get them a little bit more in, you know, comfortable saying their lines and like, remember, like feeling confident saying their lines. Like cutting the like serious edge Mm -hmm. of like, don't mess this up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like maybe these are two different versions of the same idea of just setting the tone. Right. Whether you're doing it by saying action, you know, or by cracking a joke in between setups You know it's really that that energy trickles down from the top and so i think a lot of the director's job especially when they've got an arena of producers second guessing them behind them is to just make sure that everybody knows what sort of vibe we're trying to portray and Uh keeping people in that same headspace
2: so that's what i really identified with like and, and that's the part i like the most is is getting that tone together and I think that's what's a lot like really emotionally draining of the days because you have these peaks and valleys of emotion and you want to get them in that, that, you know, mood. So you get in that mood yourself and you kind of convey that. Mm-hmm. And then even when I'm watching the monitors, a lot of people are like, I, I overly am engrossed in watching the monitors. And as soon as I feel the way I f- want to feel with the shot then I can move on, but you can see my face. Like I need to be in that frame of that, that feeling in my body. And I was like, okay, we can move on now. But if it's a really dramatic scene, I'm on the verge of tears, you know, and it it probably means way more than to me than anyone else will ever want to feel out of that scene. But just to know that that's when I have that like completion like oh I I can move on because I felt that way during that thing even if it just means that to me
1: did you have your own monitor or were you in village with I was in village yeah yeah
2: but I was like on the edge of my seat and like in the happy moments just like completely smiling and like beaming like the the happiest I've ever been looking at this monitor when I wanted to feel that on on set and then the most like depressed and like stressed out when when the characters were feeling so i all of that emotion is just like running through me all day. And then at the end of the day, I'm just like completely spent. And I don't know if that's like that for you Yeah. Guys. Well, the job of the director is to like,
0: it can be hour 18 and you have to be there with the actors like, yeah, you know, we're it's super happy. We just woke up. It's the morning, you know, yeah. and it's
2: like everyone's dying yeah. behind the camera. <laughs> the weirdest part of the day is the end. I mean, I didn't realize that mm-hmm. in every single, every single time I've directed and the Granted, it's been the last like two years, but every time it ends, everybody needs so much from you during the day. And it just stops like when you when you wrap the day Mm -hmm. and it's so weird at a certain point, it's very satisfying that you don't have to do anymore. And I'm used to like staying at work till 2 a.m. finishing something and just to know that it's just like 730 and you're done and like. I don't have to do anything more. Nobody wants you anymore. Right. It's so mm-hmm. weird. They're just Become like, okay. Instantly unnecessary after instantly. charging. The, it's so weird. You know, and then like the next day, it's the same exact thing. It's just everybody has a billion questions. And then once you cut yeah. the last thing, it's just like, you're so useless. You're like, okay, I'm going to go home, guys. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I had a really hard time with that. I remember because when I was doing my, like Squaresville or my early, early work, I was literally the guy driving the truck. To, to barking so so you didn't have that deflation of like you know that's a wrap everyone now i'm no longer useful because you were a producer too because <laughs> i was a producer too exactly and so you know i was wrapping gear i was like making sure everyone knew what was going on the next day all that stuff right and then when you when you have your own crew right basically uh, all of a sudden you're in the way Right. Like I,
2: exactly. I,
1: Oren gives me shit about wrapping cables. That's the only thing that I really am worthwhile in doing. Yeah. And like, you'll watch people like, you know, you want to, you want to show that you're grateful to them and like show that you're a part of the team, but, uh, you're in the way. Right. Yeah. Totally. And so the realization for me was that the best thing I could do for that crew was get out of their way <laughs> go home and get some sleep because I'm the person in charge of making sure that the next day goes as smoothly as that day did. You know what I mean? And so if I'm like groggy because I like was trying to help everybody and slowed everything down, then they don't get to go home on time the next day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that you're in charge of the schedule. you're in charge of the schedule, exactly. And I remember there was a day on Shitty Boyfriends that I was 10 minutes late. We were 10 minutes late the whole fucking day, yeah. you know? And that's from, it. From you know, and that was the my fault. You know? in the
0: world. Yeah, you just can't be late as a director. Yeah.
1: yeah, you just
0: can't. <laughs> you should try to be early. Evan, actually a producer we all work with, always gives me a call time that's like half an hour before my real call oh, time. Oh, really? Because yeah. he, does, he I, knows I also, how bad it is when a director's
2: yeah. late. Yeah. I have an hour commute as well, so I need to go <laughs> extra, extra early. And I, my mom has always trained me to, to go there an hour early before that. So... <laughs>
0: he so never leaves that
2: for a 6 a.m call time i would wake up at three and
1: uh you, you know. should you should sleep longer than that i know i know i i know that <laughs> now but
2: it was just sort of i didn't i, I don't really know what the commute's the gonna way. be like
1: yeah and it's also like you know you're excited yeah and like yeah you're yeah. jazzed you yeah. can't sleep I, like, what, I can't sleep before yeah. so the
2: cool like. thing about having an hour commute is i get to listen to you guys on the yeah. way over and <laughs> and you it, it sounds like i'm just like giving you you know stroking your ego but it. it was very very comforting even if it wasn't on topic of what i needed to do listening to the the podcast going to set was very therapeutic and very like i got out of my head a little bit and i just started started thinking about different things and it was really cool just just every every moment listening to your guys's show on the way over even though you guys were talking about casting like Four weeks after I was casting and like <laughs> things I could have been learning then, like it was all displaced. But just having that the humanity of being a director, I think that's the biggest thing about your podcast. To me, it was like directing was a thing that I didn't
1: know. Sure. That's what do. Steven Spielberg does and not us. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's just yeah, like you totally. let me into you humanized being a director and like, you know, taking it step by step and just kind of unearth, unearthing Topics that oh yeah I could I could do that and different ways to look at the situation which is really cool. Well thanks yeah we we're glad
0: yeah that people are getting stuff out of it yeah thanks man. So the last thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap so you you'd mentioned we've we've all worked on these digital series and, and this is something I'm I'm bringing up because I'm trying to figure out now for my show is you said you know you didn't want to think of it as a feature so I don't know how many episodes was fine tune six. Six and how many was shitty boyfriends?
1: Eight, so mine was like 90 minutes basically. Nine, okay, yeah. and
0: mine is 12 10 minute episodes, 120 minutes. And so, I'm trying to figure out if <laughs> um, Sorry, that's
2: if, insane, yeah. No,
0: in 18 days. And sci-fi, I mean, it's just, it's a, an impossible shoot, I don't know what to tell you guys. Um, but I'm trying to figure out if the character from episode one to episode 12 needs to have like if I'm if I should hit the feature you know, save the cat beats. If that's what you know, I did, the yeah. last night of the soul, like around episode nine, you know, which it refers to like when the character's sure. lowest point, like have a midpoint where the character thinks she's doing so great and, you know, gets attacked by the bad guys, you know, something probably around episode three where she finally accepts her fate in this new world. Like, do I want to hit these goalposts and do I want to see the character change or do I want to do a show more like, um, you know, like in an, uh, Law and Order or I'm trying to think something of a episodic. drama. Yeah, that's yeah. episodic that, the characters learn things sure. in every episode and they change. Lisa a little and bit. Bart
1: are twelve and nine forever.
0: Yeah. yeah. For married I always yeah. think of married with children. Like Al Bundy doesn't learn any like yeah. there's this episode when his dodge was gonna pass a hundred thousand miles or something, and no dodge in history had ever passed that. <laughs> and so they were gonna give him a million dollars if he could show it to them. And the whole episode was like, Holy shit, he's like at ninety-nine thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine miles. Like, they're going to see this go reset to zero. The nines are going to roll over and he's going to get a million dollars. It's going to change the whole show. And, of course, he has, like, the car, like, he puts it up on blocks so nobody nothing no sure. can happen. And then, like, Kelly or Bud or someone, like, accidentally leans on it. It, like, rolls just, like, a few feet and it resets to zero by the time the Guinness Book of World Records guy comes or whatever. They're like, oh, no, it's, we can't verify it anymore. Waka waka. And it's like every episode is, like, uh, you know, Simpsons is a yeah. great example.
1: But... So I, I think the answer is both, really, right? You, Because you, you have to assume that people are going to... Everyone, I'm rolling my eyes, but everyone's going to binge watch it, right? Right. That's a thing, right? That's yeah. A, the, that's the modern way that people consume media. Which means you should
0: structure it as a movie. Which means people. you should
1: structure it as a movie, but also each episode does have to stand on its own, you know? So maybe that's something as simple as like ending with a cliffhanger or something like that, but I, I don't think you can do straight up Save the Cat, Campbellian story is that that would mean that a lot of those middle episodes don't really have a beginning a middle and an end and that's the thing that you still you still have to it still has to be a satisfying little bite
0: well so how this comes back to my specific question which i think you kind of answered is does my main character need to start out really
2: flawed and have overcome
0: that flaw by the final
2: episode of the season yes I don't know. I think it's different for all. I I would hope so. You know, it it all depends on your story. I don't exactly know what your story is, but I always take the, that route with everything I do. Even when I did the stop motion thing for Disney, it was supposed to be 12 episodes and we made it into a short film. So every, you know, two or three minutes, there was a cliffhanger and it kind of kept you. You know, going. Right. So I'm kind of used to that kind of structure. But what like was the, the flaw of the main character in the beginning of blank? Yeah. Uh, he didn't have an identity, and throughout the whole thing, he kind of created his identity. And then, how does he overcome that? Well, I mean, there's a <laughs> there's a lot of flaws in in the 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 story uh, itself. But so he he's born blank without any paint on him and uh, every, everyone else Disney sure, yeah, sure. he's a figurine that wasn't painted a well, vinylmation yeah, figurine right? vinylmation yeah. figurine. and everyone else was painted and there was two figurines that were born without paint and they found each other and sort of created their own path and what about in
1: shitty boyfriends shitty boyfriends you know the flaw is that at first she's not really capable of being in a relationship even though she's dealing with all of these terrible boyfriends she hasn't learned to give herself into a relationship either. Right. So the way that we structure it is the first handful of boyfriends are all kind of a different aspect of her personality. Right. And then the final three, she meets a guy who's really great for him. And then she becomes the shitty boyfriend. And then she has to redeem herself and resolve the whole series.
0: So she, so she's come to learn that the problem isn't with the boyfriends, it's with
1: her. Right. right, Exactly. To
0: me, it's like there should be an intern, like the thing about the blank Thing well, it, it's hard because yeah. it's you know, there's no dialogue, but it's like you know, you want kind of some external thing, mm-hmm. you know, like right, she has to kill the bad guys or find an identity, like a visual identity, but you want some internal struggle,
1: yeah, you know. Right, well, when it comes to character in serialized stuff like this, I think of there's kind of two archetypes that I always look at there's the Walter White archetype that I think my friend Carrie, who works at AMC, explained to me is like. Every time that Walter wins, he makes his problem worse. So that's per- that's a perfect engine for a show. Every time he succeeds as a drug dealer, he exacerbates the actual problem in his life, his family life, and providing for them. Right. right. So that's a perfect antihero, right? Right. And then there's the you know the Tomlin and Ben Garant sort of take on your hero's flaws as like, and maybe this is more applicable for you. Han Solo is the best example. He's the coolest dude in every way, but he doesn't care about his friends, even though he really cares about his friends. Right. You know what I mean? So like, it's either that they're so watchable because they can't help themselves or they're so watchable because they're incredible and you want to be that person and that their flaw It's kind of, it's still a thing that you have to overcome, but it's sort of negligible to the audience. You'd love Han Solo, even if he didn't come back in the millennium Falcon and save the day. Yeah, but I guess you, you're trying to make it meaningful
0: and trying right. to make it worthwhile to watch. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm struggling with this because our main character is kind of she's like living in her sister's shadow and maybe thinks a little bit less of herself than her sister. But she at the end of the day is like this kind of perfect character that does all the right things and, mm-hmm. ha- and is nice and is good to people. And sure, they call, she's they like call that a Mary Sue. Yeah, Mary Sue. And then by the end, she's kind of a Mary Sue and she's one because she's been loyal to her friends and everything. And like, I kind of wish like Elle Woods is like a great example, you know, from Legally Blonde. The only reason she wants to go to law school is because she thinks um, this guy that she's in love with will like her more because she has a law degree. She's very much thinks that everyone is judged and should be judged by what they look like and what their job is and all that stuff. And, you know, by going to law school and learning about everything, she realizes that there's... Just more to
1: what a person is, you know, kind of inner beauty right. idea. But she's still a totally super smart, capable, kick-ass lawyer. Yeah. Like it's not from hard. From the beginning to the, the end. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So she's Han Solo. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> she's Han Solo. But you were saying that you well, were
0: trying to think of fine tune as less of a feature.
2: Well, uh, the other thing is like to bring it back to the topic of visual and music, I did take a visual and musical way about transitioning from episode one to episode six, in that some of the motifs were, you know, more visual and, you know, sonic. One of the things we go from his wardrobe going from his kind of like digitally oppressive lifestyle of music being channeled into digital and and more of like a scientific view. And he's sort of strayed away from his musical past. So everything I put everything from his musical past in his office was put into the shadows. And I Like I, lighting wise? Lighting wise, yeah. So everything I put into the shadows and the only things of importance to him I put in light. So he would be his laptop would be lit up and I did a lot visually like that. That's and in, cool. in Reed's room, everything that was important to him, which was music, was lit up and then his girlfriend was left in the darkness. So there's these light motifs that I was doing. And also like a sliver of light, sort of being like a beacon of musical hope at the very first episode. And that's gradually getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, these shafts of light that would enter Craig's life or Linus's life would get larger and larger as he got closer and closer with to his music. And also his wardrobe would change from this like pale blue and every, every episode, as he'd get closer and closer to his music, he'd get more and more vibrant blue. And, and was the, that a pain in the butt to have no, to I think it, the continuity it, on the wardrobe? Not really. I just kind of like, again, like the lookbook was everything. I was just like, here's what I want to do. I wanted to make a transition from pale blue to, to blue. And also from him being in a business shirt with a tie to loosening up his tie to unbuttoning his tie to having his, his shirt unbuttoned. Maybe that's just like going the, to like a nude beach. Sure. Yeah. So he's, he ends up naked and blue. Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Like, like a, a blue, blue man. man. Yeah. 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 Like David Cross. And that's the end. Musically and visually. <laughs> yeah. No, I Same, guess like, that is,
0: that yeah. is a very good arc. He's yeah. a guy that he's has this past where he was emotional about music. And then he right. discovered there's an algorithm that the computer can tell you what is good and not right. good. And you lose sight of so your He, um, he, he loses opinion. his humanity. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. by the end he's yeah. regained it. Even yeah. though I do believe in those algorithms personally but
1: cool well that's awesome Uh, yeah gina this is this was really great i feel like um you brought a ton of insight and like um and light light into the shadows and i I love that you bring a thoughtfulness to your projects that sometimes i think when you're dealing with the work a day sort of gigging around that you kind of Mm. can blow past that sometimes so this was awesome i think people are really gonna love it all right thanks guys
0: Hey, do you think it's time for a new unpaid endorsement jingle? <laughs> because I bet Gino, I love could it, could sing something. Yeah, really nice. Maybe we'll just layer it on top of. Uh, yeah, yeah, on top of Charles's Charles's voice. So yeah. So next,
2: um, we're gonna go into unpaid endorsements. <laughs> do you have one. <laughs> I I do. I have a I have a whole bunch of them because I'm such a fan of a fan of the show. I've, I wanted to prepare a whole bunch, but I think for the most part. Filming your own life, I think that's like my main endorsement. I just say, just get your, camera, your phone out and just film, even if it's just a mundane part of your life, just brushing your teeth or like patting your dog on the head or whatever. All of those moments can be amazing. And they're... Oh, actually, I do have one. So Hazel is an app that you can put on your computer that will do a bunch of different things if you give it a formula. So say you want to rename every single file in a folder, you just tell it, okay, look for images and give it a name and then also put the date with it. And then it'll look through that folder, find all the images and then do whatever you told it to do. So a friend turned me onto this and this is the only way I can categorize my footage. What I do is I put all my footage off of my iPhone into a folder and I say, Hazel, do your thing. And it, Categorizes it by um, the year, the month, and then the week, and also renames it because iPhones always give like weird, like names to the to the files. Mm-hmm. I'll say like I want it to be named the date, the time, and then the original file name. So at the end of the year, I can say like Oh, what was that one thing that I did in October?" So I look through October, and then you know I can find all my stuff. And then also for my weekly videos, I can find those really easily. And your weekly videos are just what you did that week. What do I want to remember because I have a horrible memory. So anything I really want to remember, I put
1: those in there. Cool, that sounds great. Can we share one of your weekly videos? on You
2: the- can. I would. Oh. I would. Uh, you can share one of my year videos because those are those are pretty fun.
1: Twenty sixteen is going to be really good. I hear.
2: No, that's the that's the great thing. If you when I look back on where I started a year ago, especially with directing, it's really interesting to see like where you started out the year, not knowing what happened that year and then seeing it all evolve in front of you. And then once you have one of those videos, it's great. But when you start stacking them up together, it's really phenomenal. And like this like glimpse into your life so you don't like forget where you, where you came from. Well, two pretty weak recommenda- uh,
0: endorsements I'm gonna give right now. One is Creativity Inc. It's this book by Ed Catmull, who is one of the founders of Pixar. And why I'm a huge fan is because he's also an engineer. He like came up with the Catmull-Clark algorithm to draw either circles or some yeah, sort of he's shape. kind of
1: the father of modern 3D modeling, right? Yeah, computer
0: graphics and all this stuff. And he's also like has a really good eye for creativity. And he kind of talks about the whole secret at Pixar is that ideas can come from anyone. There isn't like a chain of command that must be followed. There is, you know, obviously like some sort of hierarchy when like salaries and all that stuff. But in terms of creativity... There's no limits. Like, you know, someone's assistant can pitch ideas to the director. And, and the book starts out really good. It gets a little boring later and he just kind of keeps repeating that idea a little bit. But that idea is worth the read. And then the other thing is Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling is just something that I'm sure everyone has seen it before, but it's definitely worth revisiting. It's one of the whenever you're working on a script or even like a movie or directing or anything, it's just worth reviewing those rules because they're really good i mean there you can break them but they're they're really helpful to figure out how pixar makes such emotional moving stories in such simple ways
1: so my unpaid endorsement is one orin has been teasing me about for a long time but when i moved from working at my day job to directing full time i realized that i didn't have a good way to blow off steam the way I used to. It used to be that I would go home from work and I would write or I would uh, edit or market the show or whatever. I had I had side things that I was working on. But when those side things became my whole life, I found that I was super boring and like just the pent up, you know, like I didn't have anything else that I could do. So I just decided I'm going to start playing pinball, right? Which is a thing that I've always loved and was super handy because it's, You know, you didn't have to schedule it with people, blah, blah, blah. But I think more importantly for everyone else, think about developing a hobby. You know, Gino sitting right here, you know, you're reminded of how important it is to have outside interests and how those will influence your filmmaking career and your creativity. So nurture those, find other things, whether it's pinball or something uh, more useful. But also don't beat yourself up over the idea that, you know, it's not directly related to your Creativity in some way, like we're not monks, you know, like it's not all Comic books and painting and animation and, you know, cameras all the time. That's okay Pinball is cool and green. Do you have a specific one that you like? I have a handful. I have a hierarchy of my favorite machines for sure. But part of the fun is that like pinball is hard to find. Yeah. Right. You know, so there's a bit of like the fun of chasing it down. That's what made it a perfect hobby for me, but I'm sure each listener will have their own thing.
0: I like that your hobby is something that you have to leave the house to do and you're around other people and breathe fresh air until you get into the bar. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, well, cool. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks, Gino, for being our guest. Thanks for Uh, having me. Thanks for enriching our lives with your artwork. And can you
2: tell us how we can see some of it? I think if you go to sahorsela.com Do, you, a couple do you not have ahead. a website? I don't have a website yet. I still... I Bro, I, get that I, website. I don't have a, I don't have a reel. Vimeo, Hey, eight. man. I'm just starting out. <laughs> yeah. For the last <laughs> 10 years. Gino. No, it's weird. I'm, I'm, I'm a product of this podcast. So i am just start, started getting ready now and building my reel. So I have like three things.
0: But if you look up Gino Roy, Roy on Vimeo, G-I-N-O-R-O-Y. Yeah, that's all my
2: like personal stuff. But yeah, if you're a stalker, you can watch. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, uh, are you on Twitter or anything? Gino Roy on Twitter, at Gino Roy, I guess.
1: Perfect. Well, uh, you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enloe. And me at Piling, And the podcast at Just Shoot It Pod. You can check out show notes and uh, Gino's awesome storyboards at JustShootItPodcast.com. Give us a phone call. We haven't talked about the, the voicemail in a while. Gino, did you leave a voicemail? Yeah, mm-hmm. he did. you did. Yeah, friend. you were the first voicemail. So exciting. Give us a call at... 6262-SHOOT1.
0: Six, two, six, two, one. 1. Yes. And also, uh, if you can rate us on iTunes and leave something, a comment there, good or bad, we would love you forever.
1: And feel free to ask us any other questions. We will answer them on the show. This episode was edited by Eric Cropot. Thank you so much, Eric. And music was by Steve Combs. Take it away, Steve.
2: Matt, you got one? I had and I lost it. Um, I th- weren't you going to... Uh, I think Oren was going to... Do an endorsement of like YouTube or iTunes, like some something or Doh? Uh-huh. <laughs> something.
1: I was. I don't, I, th- I don't know. I think he's bagging on no, your endorsements. Like, oh, oh, like oh. Sipping coffee fair, rather yeah. than slurping coffee. I, well, how, really how, how do you feel about uh, d- breathing air? Is that cool?
0: I have a really bad endorsement. <laughs> that ever, now, there's almost no way that anyone listening to this podcast doesn't know about already.